Hello, everyone. This is Michael Govier from the Cinema 9 Podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 253, Jurassic Park Movie Review. Chris McBride, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. We took a little vacation around here. We took a week off, uh, but we're back with another film celebrating a milestone anniversary. Now, last time, Derek had us go back 30 years, and we reviewed Dave with Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver. So it was over to me to nominate a film celebrating 30 years. Hard to believe. We have done 252 episodes already, Derek, and we have never reviewed Jurassic Park from 1993. So that's exactly what we're going to do this episode. But before we get around to the movie, Derek, what is new in the world of pop culture for you, my friend? Hey, Chris. Good Hi. to be back. Good to be yeah. back. Been off, Always been off good to be back. A couple of weeks. Yeah. I had a chance to uh, visit with some of my high school buddies over the past weekend. We uh, we make a point at least once or twice a year of getting together. So uh, nice. shout out to Mike and Jamie. Good to see you guys in person. Um, one of the things I want to mention, uh, while we were together, we were watching some movies and you know, one of the things that I've realized is watching comedies by yourself is fine, but watching a comedy with other people, the laughter can be very infectious. Good and point. I think Good that point. we, I think that when we review comedies, we maybe don't take that into consideration as much as we should. And maybe that's something we, we need to remedy down the line the next time we're going to try to review, especially maybe a newer comedy, because I know you tend to be a little more critical of those. Maybe we need to try and arrange for uh, some sort of an option where we can view it with with just more than you know ourselves and our spouse in the room. But anyway, that's a conversation for another time. The reason I brought that up was we, uh, you know, we were up late. We were trying to find something to watch. We couldn't agree on it. And finally, someone said, hey, has anyone seen the new Jackass movie? And believe me, I love me some jackass and nothing is funnier than jackass with other people who find it as funny as you do. So we had a chance to watch jackass forever and jackass 4.5 and man, oh man, I, I had already previously seen one of these two, but I couldn't remember which one, but even the stuff I had already seen was so funny. And just being in the room with other guys who found it as funny as I did, it was just so much better. So I know jackass is not for everybody. But, you know, football in the groin is a football in the groin like that can be pretty funny under the best of circumstances. So so we had a chance to watch that. That was uh, that was definitely fun. Anyway, on to the real reviews. Mm-hmm. Normally, I, I talk about all the things I loved, but I'm going to start this episode with a couple of garbage pieces that I did not care for. So I'm going to mm. throw it out as a cautionary tale for two new things. that <laughs> it's, maybe It's people... like the things are flipped around here. I'm usually the guy yeah. that eats everything. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to choose from. And when new stuff comes out, people like me are going to dive into a bunch of it. And there's so much you're never going to get all of it. So I'm going to try and help help you call your list a little bit. So um, there's a new animated series that dropped on HBO uh, Crave here in Canada called Fired on Mars. I watched the first two episodes of this. This thing is garbage. It was awful. I, I barely got through the first episode and I thought, 
okay, something's got to change at the beginning of episode two, like because it's getting a lot of good buzz, and I, was, and I think it even got renewed for season two already. And I watched most of the second episode, and I, I just had to turn off. It was it was just not good. So uh, if you're like me, if you like the kind of movies that I tend to recommend, I, Fired on Mars, pfft, thumbs down, avoid it. The other one that I didn't care for that I was really disappointed about was um, we have Apple TV, as I mentioned a few times, and we've got a short 90-day subscription, so we're trying to watch everything. And Ted Lasso continues to be amazing. But then it says, oh, well, you've watched Ted Lasso and you've watched Shrinking. Uh, you may also like, and it's a, a newer show called The Door Prize. And they're billing it as a comedy. And so I thought, okay, this is getting a lot of good buzz. I think it was a number three pick or number four pick on Apple. I watched the first episode. Again, did not care for it at all. Do, have no idea why it's being billed as a comedy. I didn't laugh once. Like there was nothing in it that I even found remotely funny. Uh, maybe it's just not being marketed correctly, but I, I couldn't, I, I disliked it so much. I wasn't even willing to jump into the second episode. I just found that this show, the door prize was a stinker. So avoid fired on Mars and avoid the door prize. I think you'll be, uh, I think you can find better things, wow. but let's move on to better things. Yeah. So star Trek Picard season three just ended. Absolutely. The best star Trek TV they've ever put out. This was fantastic. This better is than like the original series. I think so. This wow. is everything you ever oh. wanted from the Star Trek The Next Generation franchise. It brings, you know, it's they put the band back together for one last Greatest Hits reunion tour, and it pays off. And I was so worried that they were not going to stick the landing, but they totally stuck the landing. It was outstandingly good. Worth the price of admission, even though I didn't have to pay anything extra for it. Uh, if you can binge it, if you haven't started watching it already, that's probably the better way to go. My wife's currently literally binging it right now while we're recording this. Ten episodes. They were outstandingly good. If you're a fan of Star Trek, you're a fan of The Next Generation, two huge thumbs up, Star Trek Picard Season 3, and that's it. This show is done. They've already said that. I mean, Patrick Stewart's getting up there in age, so he said this is it. So they they basically brought out all their A material. It's fantastic. Another great one that I'm watching right now, Chris, I don't know if you're watching it, Barry Season 4, the fourth and final season of Barry starring Bill Hader and Henry Winkler. Have you started watching Season 4 yet? Yes. So we watched the first episode. It is so good. That, that show is amazing. amazing. And, and of course, it stars my hero, Henry Winkler. It does. So I think three episodes have dropped. The, again, the shows are about 30 minutes piece. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed Barry, but this fourth this fourth season is, in my mind, just so much better than everything that's come before it. And that's high praise because I thought that everything that came before it was already pretty strong. And this and is the final season, too. Fourth right? and final season. Because and I, I heard different things after season three. Then I heard Bill Hader say, oh, no, there's lots more of this story to tell yet. So I'm thinking, oh, so there's going to be multiple more seasons. But then they came out and said, nope, season four is it. Yeah. So and apparently Bill Hader directs every episode in this final season. So I've been listening to uh, a podcast and they basically interview Bill Hader after every episode and they break it down. And so I'm getting that extra little behind the scenes knowledge of it, which I think is just enhancing my viewing experience. But yeah, if you've watched any of the previous shows of Barry and you're not caught up on season four, definitely jump in. Or if you're if you're the kind of person that wants to wait for it to finish and then binge it, I believe it's going to uh, the final episode will air by the end of May. So you only got a few more weeks and then you can binge the whole thing. But yeah, two giant thumbs up for Barry season four. Two fantastically giant thumbs up for Star Trek Picard season three. Um, and then lastly, but not leastly, I, I had a chance to binge an older franchise. Have you watched any of the Bourne movies with Matt Damon? Uh, with who? Matt Damon. <laughs> no, yeah, actually, I've never seen those. 
Okay, so I had only ever seen the first one, The Born Identity, and I read the book just before the movie, and of course the movie was nothing like the book, but the movie was fun, and then he did a second one called Born Supremacy, a third one called The Born Ultimatum. Now that I think about it, I think I might have seen that second one once. I think me and a friend went to the movie theater to see it, and it was with the girl from Run, Lola, Run. Yeah, she's in the first one, and then, spoiler, she gets killed five minutes into the second one. I think it was the second one where she died. Yeah, and then then apparently they did a Bourne movie where they tried, like, Jeremy Renner was the main character, and that didn't work. So then they did one final Bourne movie. I think it's just called Jason Bourne. So I haven't watched those last two yet, but I watched the Bourne Identity, Bourne Supremacy, Bourne Ultimatum this week, having only ever previously seen the first one. And, man... Matt Damon is a pretty good action hero. He kicks some butt in this stuff. There's some great car chase sequences. It was it was one of those uh, good sort of turn your brain off action movies. Like some of the stuff is super duper phony baloney, but it's got a little bit of that spy stuff and the espionage and the the you know the the counter surveillance thing. And so that's always fun. But um, yeah, it was it was a fun little visit a revisit for the first one, and then a chance to finally see part two and part three, which I had never seen. And they all came out like in the early 2000s, so like you know they're 10, 15 years old now, but uh, they were fun too. So. Yeah, I had a pretty good week all around after getting rid of those two stinkers off my list. I watched The Three Borns, I watched Picard, I watched Barry, and I watched the Jackass movies with my good buddies. So all in all, I had a pretty good uh, pretty good pop culture week. What about you, Chris? So I did something a little bit different. Well, at least different for me, Derek. I went to see a new movie. I know that's shocking. Like in the theater? Yeah, in the theater. So my youngest son wanted to go see the Super Mario Brothers movie. So I took him. Now, I have a little bit of a story to tell to set this up. So I went online to buy my tickets. And in the city that I live in, there's two big galaxy cinemas here in the city. And and like I say, I went online to the website, to the one in the south end of the city. There's one in the south end, there's one in the north end. And I went and I bought two tickets. And you know, you get to choose your seats. You know, the yep. whole deal. You know how yeah, it works, yeah, right? Sure. So I go to the theater, I buy the tickets, and then I, I, I put them on my phone. And I go to the theater. And the guy scans me and my son in, and then he points and he goes, you got to go to screen number one right there on the right. I'm like, okay. So my son and I go in and it's all dark and the movie's already playing. I'm like, what the hell is this? And it's this, the new Scream movie is on. And it's right at the scene where this guy is getting brutally stabbed to death, like very graphically too, I might add. Okay. So there's me and my young son, like in shock, right, standing in the aisle of this theater. And this girl comes up and she's like, do you two have tickets for this showing? And so we step out on the hall and, and I show her my tickets. And she's like, these are tickets for our other movie theater in the north end of oh, the city. Geez. I'm like, oh, my God, I have no idea how this happened. Like, I know I clicked on the right theater, but obviously not. So anyway, so she takes me up to the front to get a refund. And then and she's like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll give you a refund and I'll get you tickets for this theater. And the whole time it's busy as hell in there and the theater's filling up. And then she comes out of the office and she's like, um, you use coupons actually for these tickets. So I can't give you a refund. So she goes over and, you know, there's like the concession stands and she opens up like a new till at the concession stand. Okay. And she's like, you know what, here, let me just go in here and I'll just do an override and I'll just transfer the tickets from the other location to this location. Perfect. And she's like, oh, here, here's a screen here, flip it around and just you pick, you and your son pick your scene, your, your, your uh, seats there on the screen. And then um, she prints out our new tickets and, and we go and see the movie. So I just wanted to say in this day and age with the lack of customer service that you see all the time, this girl was absolutely amazing. Like, huge shout out to the Galaxy Cinemas in Barrie, Ontario. 
amazing customer service. I just want to say that flat out. Nice, nice. So, I love hearing stuff like that. Because oh, too many times just, the story is they wouldn't help me. I couldn't figure out why there was a problem. So it's always nice when they when they when they make right. And of course, I went online. I'm like, I want to find a manager. She was obviously like a supervisor or something like that. She was just outstanding. And I'm like, went online trying to find a manager so I could like write an email to somebody somewhere about this and, and, and give her a kudos. And I couldn't get any information. I called. Nobody has any information. So I'm like, oh, well. So I thought I'll give her a shout out on this podcast. That's good enough. Right. So there you go. Um, so anyway, I want to talk about the movie itself. So I didn't really care for the movie all that much. Surprise, surprise. I know. And so I was in this theater filled with little kids and they were all loving it. Like, I mean, they gave this huge round of applause at the end of the movie. So I don't know, maybe I'm missing something. But so I didn't really like the movie that much. But there was one part that I actually really, really liked. So there's this bad guy. He's like a big dragon or something. I never really played Super Mario Brothers. So I wasn't really familiar with the characters. Maybe that's why I didn't like it. I don't know. There's this big dragon guy. Bowser, I think his name is. Yep. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is that it? So he's in love with the princess. Her name is Princess Peaches. And in the middle of the movie, for no, no reason at all, he's just all of a sudden sitting there by himself, alone in the dark, at a piano. And he starts singing this song, professing his love for her. And it goes something like this. He's like, Peaches, understand... I'm going to love you to the very end. Peaches, 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 peaches. I love you so. And it was actually Jack Black that was doing the voice. I didn't find out until the final credits. And then you could tell that they like ran his voice like through a pitch shifter and a synthesizer. So it kind of sounded like this. Peaches, understand, I'm gonna love you till the very end. Peaches, 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 I love you so. So I can do that too, you know? Anyway, but I just wanted to mention, that was the best part of the movie by far. And then a few days later... My other son was watching this scene on YouTube of Bowser playing the piano and singing that song. And then on my drive home the other day from work on the radio, there was a techno version of the Peaches song from the movie. It's, apparently, this has like become quite a thing. So, so now I'm, I'm hip and I'm up on what the kids are into nowadays, you know, because, you know, that's me. Oh, and I also have this. Here's your dad joke of the week. All right, Derek, since we're, we're we're doing the movie this week, I thought I would do like a dinosaur dad joke. You know, that seems okay. appropriate, right? So, Derek, what do you get if you splice the DNA of a T-Rex and a pig? Uh, a pigosaurus. I have no idea. Jurassic pork. Jurassic no, Pork, Derek. It, it sounds like the title of like caveman porn or something. <laughs> Actually, Jeez. maybe you can star in it. <laughs> Yikes. 
I was the only man left on the planet after the Holocaust, eh? Because you're probably drunk. That's why I just spent all my time looking for beer. Save me one of those beers. No way, eh? Experience and maturity. I gotta take a leak so bad I can taste it. I don't know how they got him to do it. You drive. There's a lot of cops around. It was a different time. No, no, I've had had enough beer. Some of the things from the early 80s, it's it's hard to relate to them now. Oh, come on. That's some funny right there. So we are going back in time. 30 years, we're going to revisit the original Jurassic Park. This movie spawned five sequels. Two under the Jurassic Park name, and then three movies were made under the Jurassic World title. So just a slight rebranding. Is that what they call it these days, Derek? Rebranding? See, I'm Uh, hip hip to what's new. Not only can I sing, I can do that. They also call it a cash grab, but it is what it is. Now, before we get into the original film, what did you think of the sequels, Derek? For me, it's a direct sliding scale. The first Jurassic Park, amazing. Lost World, pretty good. Jurassic Park 3, dumb. Jurassic World, dumber. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, more dumb. And Jurassic World Dominion, dumbest of them all. So, what do you think Uh, of the sequels? Well, I I, I think this one... I think the first one stands on its own clearly as the best one. Uh, It's based very closely on the book by Michael Crichton, which... Uh, I did have a chance to read before the movie, before I watched the movie. And then when this movie was such a, a phenomenon, they wanted to make a sequel. Creighton ran out and wrote a sequel as fast as he could. And I remember reading uh, articles afterwards where he even said, uh, it wasn't my best work, but I was really under the gun because they're like, we're making a movie, whether this book is done or not. And so I read the book and then I saw the second movie. And of course they made a lot of changes from the book, which always annoys me. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it was good uh the second one i thought was good but you know not nearly as good as the first one and then the third one i don't even think i saw in the theater i think i just waited for video and sort of went eh, is what it is because i'd heard it wasn't that good and i was right (laughs) but then when they rebooted it i i liked i you know i liked how they reimagined the the idea like they didn't just do a total reboot they acknowledged that what had happened before had really happened and this was now 20 or 30 years later and so i liked that they were able to sort of build on that um, that that world building that had been done in the previous in the previous movies, they were able to, to sort of uh, expand on that. Of course, the theme is and the, the the plots for every Jurassic Park movie is the same. You know, they create dinosaurs. They think they can control dinosaurs. Dinosaurs run amok. Dinosaurs, you know, kill people. And then people have to do something to contain the dinosaurs. Like that's all six movies in a nutshell, including this one. And uh but yeah, then the new ones sort of started to go downhill. They're like, let's just throw money at it to make the special effects bigger and better. And yeah, they, they kind of got out of hand. I think I think it was very clear that the last three movies have been just as much about selling toys and selling merchandise to go with the movie uh, as the movie itself. Whereas these first ones like this is this first one is a Steven Spielberg movie like he didn't make Jurassic Park ad- adapted from a critically acclaimed novel to sell dinosaur toys. He did it because he knows how to make a good movie. And uh, you can really tell, like the first one clearly, clearly, clearly stands alone and above the other three or the other five. Probably safe to say that Jurassic Park was a game changer just in movie history. Oh, no question. Like the advance in the special effects, the box office success, the idea of bringing dinosaurs to life. You mentioned it was based on Michael Crichton's novel. I read his book too. And I thought the book was amazing. It's, it was really like, good. Like Very you said, strong. different from the movie. Because for one thing, the book is way more violent than the movie was. 
And there was a lot of scenes in the book that that made it into the sequels, but they weren't in the original film. Like things like, remember the T-Rex, he goes into the waterfall, I think in the second movie, like that was in the original book. And there was that whole caged pen with the pterodactyls in the third film, that was in the book. But I thought the book was quite good. Like you said, you read the book, you liked it, right? Yeah, so my I have a funny history with the Jurassic Park movie. So 1993 is the year I went away to university. And uh, I honestly, I can't remember when in the year Jurassic Park came out. Do you happen to know off the top of your head which month it came out? Uh, it came out in the summer, if I remember correctly. So, and that sounds about right to me. So that summer, I was busy moving out of my parents' house, moving to a new city, going away to school to live on my own for the very first time. I did not see many movies in the summer of 1993. And then when I got to school, I didn't have a car. I didn't have disposable income. I was there trying to, you know, put a dent in my my university education. And, you know, I was the first time living away from home. You can only imagine the kind of things I was doing. And going to see Jurassic Park was not high on the list. Although I did read the book because it was in in the mainstream so much. I thought, well, if I can't go see the movie, I'll at least read the book because I was an avid reader. Um, but I didn't actually see the movie Jurassic Park for the first time until it came out on video. And I have never to this day seen it in a movie theater. I've only ever seen it on home video or on DVD or on Blu-ray or on streaming. I've never, ever seen the first one in a movie theater. Um, so you want to know, know something? What's that? I did not see the original Jurassic Park in the theater either. Wow. Believe it or not. I was going to go. I remember in, in, in 93 when it came out, I was going to go on a date with this girl and we were at her house at her parents house you know because i was young we were at her house and we were and i was like hey why don't we go out and go see jurassic park because it was like this huge phenomenon right and she was like i just want to go to this like there was a park in town and she's like, i just want to go to the park and just hang out and i'm like well this pretty girl wants to be with me and hang out at the park. I'm fine with that. <laughs> so I, I remember we just went and hung out together and we didn't end up going. And then, so I never ended up going to see that movie. I remember that. But uh, yeah, it would be neat to see. They're, they're starting to bring a lot of movies back into the movie theater, like like older movies. And hopefully if they bring that one back, I'd like to go see it. That That's for sure. So obviously it was directed by Steven Spielberg, uh, made on a budget of $63 million. It made over a billion dollars at the worldwide box office domestically it was number one that year uh by far it like doubled the next movie which was the fugitive that year rounding another, out the top another five. strong pick for yeah, a that was a anniversary let me tell you that's a great movie it was great uh, uh rounding out the top five was the firm at number three uh sleepless in seattle at number four and mrs doubtfire at number five go figure um, this movie was nominated for three Oscars and it won all three that it was nominated for. It was nominated for best sound effects editing, best sound, best visual effects, won all three. And not only that, 1993 was a pretty good year for Steven Spielberg. No kidding. <laughs> Jurassic Park dominated the box office and Schindler's List that year finally won him an Oscar for directing. So critical and commercial bonanza for him back in 1993. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely the absolute pinnacle of his career like that, that in one of the other podcasts I listen to, they talk about like your apex mountain. You, you don't get better than that. Like that not only is that his absolute apex, but there are no one else is ever going to achieve that. Like that's it is a it is a feat unlike anything else. We're never going to see that again. Like he is literally one of one. Yeah. And so when this movie came out in 93, it ended up becoming the highest grossing movie of all time at the time. And and you and I have talked about the sort of history of box office champions before. Yeah. So 
um, going back, let's if we just go all the way back into like the 70s, Star Wars, when it came out, it beat Jaws, you know, uh, as the number one movie in the box office. And then E.T., the extraterrestrial in 1982, took over and became the so highest. So hang on, so it was Christmas. Jaws, Steven What's Spielberg, that? Jaws. It was Jaws, Steven Spielberg, then yeah. Star Wars. Then Star Wars. Then E.T., Steven Spielberg. Then E.T., that then Jurassic next. Park took over in 1993 as the also highest grossing Spielberg. film of all time. So now three three movies, three of the last four top grossing of all time are Spielberg. What, what Spielberg films. Yeah. Amazing. And then it held the title until 1997, obviously. Titanic took over. And then Titanic was the box office champ until Avatar, Avatar. in 2009. Yeah. And then finally Avengers Endgame took it over in 2019. Yeah. So for a, a period of time there, Jurassic Park was the highest grossing film of all time. So... Yeah. But, but anyway, I want to ask you this. I've been asking lots of questions for you. I want to, I want to talk a little bit about science fiction for a second. I have a question. I, for I don't you. know anything about science fiction. I don't know what you're talking to me. Yeah, you're not a big science Fire fiction Fly away, guy. man. What do you want to know? Do you consider this movie to be science fiction? Absolutely. Because we did a podcast where we picked our top five science fiction films. This was like near the top of my list. And I got some flack for that. Now, to be fair... I get flack for just about everything that I say on this podcast. So that's to be fair. You deserve it. Yeah, I do. You talk about on this podcast. Exactly. I take it with a grain of salt, I guess. But for me, this is science fiction at its best. Like, I think people tend to think of sci-fi as outer space stuff. Yeah. Or futuristic. Yeah. But sci-fi is really just using science creatively to create fantastic situations, right? Yeah. The idea of extracting dinosaur DNA from mosquitoes preserved in fossilized amber. Oh. That's just about as sci-fi as you can get. Like, that's the yeah. definition of sci-fi as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, I don't know. I just consider this to be like a sci-fi to the max. Okay. When you were a kid, I got more more questions for you. When yeah. you were a kid, did you love dinosaurs? I don't know a kid that doesn't love dinosaurs or that didn't love dinosaurs. Of course I love dinosaurs. I had dinosaur posters on my wall. I had dinosaur toys. Like, this would have been back in the 70s, right? Like, they're... They didn't have anything like they have today, but I can remember my mom had bought me these. They were like posters, but they were in the shapes of the Like it was a poster of the dinosaur, but it was literally cut out around the outline of the dinosaur. So it was literally the shape of the dinosaur. And I had like six or eight of them on the wall. And then I, I had to like learn all the names, like even because they didn't come. Oh, I was too young to read, but they didn't even have like name placards on them. And I can remember that that was one of the things I, I took a lot of pride in once I could name all the dinosaurs and stuff. But yeah, like kids love dinosaurs. I have yet to meet a kid who yeah. at some point in their childhood hasn't just been enamored with dinosaurs. And going back to the book for a second, I think that's where Spielberg, you know, is just so smart is that he realized the book was too violent. It was it was good for what it was, but yeah. he had to more appeal to more kids. You know, and still make it kind of scary, but a more appeal to kids, which is what he did. I was the same way when I was a kid. I love dinosaurs. I could I could name all the dinosaurs. My we did an episode on this podcast ah, quite a few years ago, I think, about our favorite toys when we were kids. Yes. And one of my favorite toys that I had was this whole. It was by, by a company called Marks, and they had all these dinosaur figures in this whole mountain. And I just I loved dinosaurs as a kid. But the reason that I bring that up too is. Is okay. When I was a kid, I loved dinosaurs. I knew them, but the one dinosaur that kind of emerged from this movie that didn't really wasn't as much in the consciousness of the public before that was Velociraptors. Yeah, absolutely. Before this movie came out, Velociraptors weren't all that well known. Like they weren't one of the most famous dinosaurs. And like I said, when I was a kid, I knew all 
other names, but I didn't really remember that much about Velociraptors. It was like T-Rex, Triceratops, Brontosaurus, Ankylosaurus. But, Stegosaurus. Yeah, Stegosaurus. But it's cool, too, because Spielberg is so smart. You know, he puts these Velociraptors at the forefront, but he also recognizes that T-Rex is the star of the show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like he, he does. Well, do I mean, that. you look at the, the cover of the book or the poster of the movie, which is the the movie poster is nearly identical to the cover of the book. And it's the the fossilized skeleton silhouette of the of the T-Rex. Like everybody realizes that's the dinosaur. That's your that's your star. That's your that's your marquee right there. Probably one of the greatest movie logos of all time. Don't you? Absolutely. Think? Like, it's Absolutely. Just so amazing. What an amazing logo. Like so good. So I want to also ask about the special effects. We need to go there. So my question to you is, and it seems like an easy question, but I don't think it is. Do the special effects hold up? And the reason I ask this is because my I have a 13-year-old son, and he says that they don't. He says that CGI has gotten so much better that the new Jurassic World Dominion is 100 times better than the original Jurassic Park. I don't know about Proving that. Proving for once and all, and all that kids today have no idea about good pop culture. In my mind, I think the, their entire generation is blind, Derek. Star Wars, I'm talking about the original from 1977, as always, when I mention Star Wars, is the best practical special effects of all times. Hands no, down. No question. No argument. Jurassic Park is the best blend of practical effects and CGI in the history of film to this day. Do you agree? That's a hill I will die on, Derek. I, I that's a tough conversation. I, I, I think it's definitely in the conversation. I think it makes the top five without question, whether it's the absolute number one. I think that's that's a, a full on conversation for another day. Um, I do think the special effects hold up. And I think that part of the reason that you and I find them to be a, as superior as we believe is that they're not perfect. And I think that's what today's young kids expect is they they have 4K, high definition, everything. And so the new stuff that they see today is perfect. It's smooth, it's crisp, it's clean. I think that with Jurassic Park, what the artists and animators understood was by keeping things a little blurry, a little dirty, a little unfocused, and not in a bad way that makes it look cheap, but like that's how things would... would um, would look in reality from the distance. Like a lot of these dinosaurs, you're supposed to be seeing them from far away. So it's like, as they're running around and things like that, they shouldn't be in 4k perfect high definition as it runs past the, as it runs past the field of vision, it should be a little bit blurry. It should be a little bit grainy. And I think that might be the kind of thing that your kids, they just expect that, well, if it's fake, it should look like a video game. It should look perfect. It should look digital. Whereas I think you and I are like, if it's a special effect, the best special effects are the ones that you don't know are special effects. Now, obviously, dinosaurs don't exist, so it has to be a special effect. But you know what I mean? Like, I think mm-hmm. I think that's that's sort of the me- like we're using different measuring sticks to determine whether <clears throat> but, or not we think it holds up and if, whether or not it's good. But the hill I'm dying on is the blend of practical special effects and CGI together, because now everything is just CGI. Everything is digital. This movie blended the two together, and I think it did it absolutely seamlessly which we'll come back to in a bit i'm sure we get to the some of the scenes but i want to talk about the cast a little bit because you know the cool thing is to ensure like spielberg is just he's a genius in so many ways he needed to make sure that the dinosaurs and these amazing special effects were the highlight and the focus of the movie 
So instead of casting, you know, big movie stars in this film, I think he smartly went with just really, really good actors. You know, yeah. great choice. You agree yeah. with that, right? Oh, absolutely. The casting in this movie is fantastic. Think big movie stars would have been a distraction here? Very much. And I think that's a big part of why the new ones don't work as well. They, that's exa- they did the opposite. They're like, we need recognizable names, recognizable faces that we can throw up on the poster and that'll bring people into the movie. And it's like, I think they forget exactly what you just said. The dinosaurs need to be the star of the movie, not Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard. Don't get me wrong. They put out great work in the past. They, you know, they're very attractive to look at and all the rest of that. But I think that, I think that it has hurt these new movies by, uh, by putting the, the, the people, the, the, the human stars in the forefront, I think has sort of, lost the point of what the the original Jurassic Park was doing. And of course, Bryce Dallas Howard is, of course, the daughter of Richie Cunningham. So there's always that. So let's take a look at this for a second. Sam Neill played Alan Grant, obviously. Mm -hmm. I liked him ever since a movie called The Final Conflict came out in 1981. Little movie. It was the third film in the Omen trilogy. He played the grown-up Damien, the son of the devil. I think he's a really good actor. I always liked that movie. I, uh, I I remember him, the first time I remember seeing mm-hmm. him was in a made-for-TV movie based on a very uh, a very good book called Cain and Abel. The book was by Jeffrey Archer. It was a TV miniseries, and he was um, he was Cain of the Cain and Abel, and that's where I first remember seeing him. That would have been probably 82, 83-ish. How, okay, so let's go through a couple of actors that were considered for that role, okay? William Hurt. Yeah, he, he could have done it. Richard Dreyfus, who worked with Spielberg uh, before, obviously on no. Jaws and Close Encounters and all. Yeah, I don't think it would have worked as well. Harrison Ford was considered. But then we run into the problem we just talked about. Exactly. I think he's too big a star. Tim Robbins. Uh, so this was pre Shawshank Redemption. So he that probably would have worked okay because he didn't. He hmm. wasn't that well known at that point. Kevin Costner was considered. Uh, I don't know if he would have worked. And Tom Sizemore was also considered for this part. Wow. Isn't that interesting? I mean, yeah. <clears throat> you know, I, I think Sam Neill was a good choice. I think I so think too. he did a great job, and I, I think he brought exactly Obviously. what they needed to it. So Laura Dern, uh, she definitely had the pedigree. <clears throat> Her mom is Diane Ladd from mm-hmm. Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. She also took over for, for Flo on Alice, the TV show Alice. She played Belle. That was her character in the movie. Um, and her dad is Bruce Dern. Probably best known for Coming Home with Jane Fonda and John Voight. I remember him too. He was in a movie called Tattoo with Maude Adams back in like 81. And he was the dad in the movie Nebraska. Have you ever seen that with Will Forte? No, I tried watching it. I couldn't get into it. Oh, oh wait, I, no. Well, that's the one that's in black and white? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Nebraska I've seen. I thought it you was, were saying Nashville. I'm like, no. Nashville I've tried to get into and I couldn't. But no, Nebraska, Nebraska I did see. It was, it was really good. good. It was surprisingly it was good. good. Yeah. It he was, was nominated for Best Picture Oscar. Yeah. It was good, and he was good at it. And but Laura Dern <clears throat> has had one hell of a career herself. I mean, she was nominated for an Oscar for *Rambling Rose*, which she was amazing in, and she was in *Mask* with um, Eric Stoltz and Cher. So other actors considered for the role of Ellie Sadler. Are you ready, Robin Wright? Sure, she could have done it. Juliette Binoche. I think she was in *Chocolate*. She was in *The English Patient*. Yeah. Mm. Sandra Bullock was considered for this. Okay. Uh, she and, been a little young. I might have had a hard time believing her as a scientist. Yeah, and Helen Hunt and Gwyneth Paltrow also auditioned for this part and did not get the role, interestingly. Yeah, Helen Hunt I probably would have bought, but mm-hmm. 
Gwyneth Paltrow again, I think, because this is the problem I find with with some Hollywood movies is they, especially with the female parts, is they they'll often want to cast a very attractive woman as eye candy for the movie, just whether or not she can perform or not. And then they put her in a role where it's like, oh, okay, your character is supposed to be this very important, specialized, let's say, doctor or scientist. And then you think in your mind, well, that person who probably went to school for six to ten years before, you know, gaining a name for themselves in this field of study. So they need to be, let's say, between 30 and 40 to really have that credibility. And then they cast like a 21-year-old supermodel. It's like, I'm sorry. Denise Richards just isn't a nuclear scientist in the James Bond movie. I just I can't buy it. It's just so unfathomable that that. And so I think with this part, Laura Dern's character at this time was just like she came in at just the right age with just the right amount of experience that you believe that she was this reputable scientist. I think with some of those other names you mentioned, those performers at this time would have been just a little bit too young. And I would have had a real hard time believing that they were this person that they were portraying. Anyway, that, maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just the, nope. the good points. Jeff Goldblum. So I remember him from Death Wish. And there was this movie that I loved as a kid. I've mentioned it before. It's called Thank God It's Friday. He was in okay. that. He is one of the most original and unique actors ever. He, yeah, you know, he's he, really out there. He reminds me of Christopher Walken. In, yes. in the sense that like he has this cadence in his speech. He emphasizes words in an odd and unusual way that's just all his own. Uh, very unique talent. One of a kind. Yeah, I mean, for me, I always, my, my first and, and best memory of him is from the movie The Fly, which right. I love. I think, I think he was amazing in that movie. Later on, I went back and he was in uh, Buckaroo Bond, Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai, and I believe he was in that one, the Earth Girls Are Easy. Yes. Um, which, I mean, that movie was terrible. And then obviously he went on to do uh, a lot of other stuff. I mean, he's, you look at his IMDb, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, to your point, he he tends to play like these odd quirky characters. He seems to be very tall and lanky. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how tall he is, but he just, he seems tall and he's the way he speaks. And it's like, is he attractive or not? Like he's sort of that, is he handsome? I don't know. And oh, well he, yeah, he's sort of, but kind of weird looking like a, he, he sort of, can just be everything all at once and it just totally works for him. No, I love him and I think totally he's great in this. Guy. And I think the kind of character that they were casting, like he's perfect. Like yeah. this chaotician, it's it's this bizarre field that's sort of on the fringes, but you he can explain it in a way that you start to get it. And it's like, yeah, no, this is exactly the, the casting choice you want. I kind of know, do you have casting options for who else they wanted for Malcolm? Oh yeah, the only other actor that was really seriously considered for the part of Ian Malcolm was Jim Carrey. Oh, well, there we go. We just talked about Earth Girls Are Easy. Mm-hmm. He was in that with him. Yeah, uh, so I could not imagine him playing this part. But I mean, he was yeah. seriously considered for this part. But Johnny Depp, uh, Bruce Campbell, Michael Keaton, Ted Danson, Michael J. Fox, and Steve Gutenberg all did screen screen tests for this huh. and auditioned. Wow. Did not get the part, obviously. No. I mean, some of them probably would have been okay. But yeah. no, I think Goldblum was absolutely oh, yeah. the cream of the crop on that list. And then Richard Attenborough. Um, as, uh, as he's, just, he's just great. Yeah, he was Big X in The Great Escape. That's a yep. movie you you had us review with here a couple yeah, years ago. It's a great it movie. And he was in the remake of Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. But his, his right, narration yeah. is just incredible on that Planet Earth documentary oh series. God, yeah. He's got I, one of those. Great I thought he was a great casting choice here. The only Fantastic. other actor seriously considered for this part, Sean Connery. Wow, he turned it down. Decided he didn't want to do it. Is this one of the ones I know Sean Connery had a thing where they offered him all these movies and these like these great parts in these movies. And he kept turning them down because he was like, 
I read the script and I didn't really understand what it was about, so I turned it down. Like, I think I remember him. It was this. He turned down The Matrix. He turned down, I think, Lord of the Rings. Like, there was all these ones that ended up being these massive, massive hits. And every time they sent him the script, he's like, what the hell is this? I don't understand what they're talking about here. And then he passed on, like, some of the biggest movies of the 90s. So, yeah. Jeez. Yeah, and then he did that one where he was wearing like that onesie thing or whatever in space, whatever the hell that was. That uh, Zardoz? I don't know, whatever it was. Okay, so I want to talk about the style of this film because Spielberg always seems to find a way to put just the coolest things in his films. Okay. So the the scene where they're trying to outrace the T-Rex in the Jeep and you see the T-Rex approaching in the side view mirror and it says, objects are closer than they appear and it's like right there. Like it's just so stylistic. Like such a great shot. And another one that stood out to me watching it again was when the granddaughter is eating the jello and she spots a raptor. Yes. And the jello just starts shaking on the spoon because she's trembling with fear. Like so stylistic and good. And the actress did such a good job. Like she legit looked terrified. Yes. And then, of course, I think the one that stood out to me the most was when the scene, the T-Rex scene, when it's first approaching and it's like kind of far away and there's a glass of water sitting on the dash of the car. And the thudding of the T-Rex footsteps is causing the water to have these concentric circles appear. Talk about practical special effects. Yeah, I read they, how they did that. Yeah. They, they tried everything. Nothing would work. The water would shake, but it wouldn't perform, like they have those like, little perfect concentric circles. They ran a guitar string under the body of the car and a guy laid on the ground and plucked it. Yeah, I heard that. That's yeah. how like, they got the circles to form them. Talk about creativity, right? I know. Like that's, that's now I mean, they that's, just use CGI. That's, you, that's you the know? whole name of the game with special effects is this is the vision the director wants. Special effects people make it happen. And that's that's where you get so much creativity and ingenuity. There was I, I mentioned this a while back. There was a series. I think it was on Apple, if I remember correctly, and it was called Light and Magic. And it's mm-hmm. a six-part documentary series about the history of the special effects shop, Industrial Light and Magic. It's on Disney Plus. Yeah, it's Disney Plus. That yeah. makes more sense. Yeah, so good. And although the first two or three episodes are primarily about the first couple of Star Wars movies, yeah, the later ones talk about like the evolution of their shop. And there's a whole one of the episodes is almost exclusively on Jurassic Park. And it's if you're if you're interested in that kind of thing and you haven't checked out that documentary yet, it's it's really good. You'll learn a lot of stuff. And it's exactly like you said. They they really talk about how. Some of the things just had to be digital, but other things, it just made more sense for them to do what they know and figure out a practical way to do it, like well, the thing with the concentric circles. Right. We'll come back to that in a second. I want to come back to that because that's a good point. I want to mention one thing that's in my mind is the sense of wonder. Because you mentioned on a previous show how the sequels to this, I can't remember how this came up. We were talking about Jurassic Park sequels, and you said they'll never capture that sense of wonder that audiences got when they first watched Jurassic Park. Yep. And I, I guess that got me thinking, and as I watched this, and I assume the greatest sense of wonder sort of started early in the film when Grant and Sattler first go to the island and see the Brachiosaurus. Yeah, yeah, but for sure. The, they come the, over the hill and then yeah. they stand up at the back of the Jeep. Like, that's the scene. That's the that's first the time scene. anybody saw a dinosaur, these new generation of dinosaurs on screen. Like, we see it when the performers see it, and everybody in the theater had the exact same reaction as those actors. But funny enough... I think it's one of the lesser effects in the film, that scene. To me, that looks a little bit like traditional sort of hand-drawn animation. Mm. The CGI scenes later, when there's like rain and darkness to help give it cover, I think they make the CGI better in the subsequent scenes. 
That's just my yeah. opinion. But. No, that's and that's but that's that's part of the movie magic, right? Yeah. Is anything that you can see unobstructed in the in your field of vision has to be perfect, or people are going to criticize it. But anything you can hide with the lights, the shadows, the rain, the yeah, of course it's going to you're going to be able to sell that illusion better. I want to talk about the score in this movie too. The score in this movie is absolutely brilliant, and John Williams, you know, he's a master, right? I think if any other composer did one of the film scores that he's done, they'd have this enormously successful career and like a lasting impact on film history. This guy is the best ever. I saw a video posted on social media not that long ago where John Williams was conducting an orchestra, probably, I think it was the Boston Pops, and it was just amazing, and they were doing Jurassic Park. The score for this movie is brilliant. So that being said, where would you rank this score with John Williams' other scores. I mean, that could be so, an entire podcast topic unto itself. Yeah, no kidding. Like for me, so I, I think I think my list would go Star Wars number one, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. Jaws it, like is four. It, it's so simple. It it it, it almost shouldn't be on the list because it's just so simple. But that score is just it basically took that film to a different level. So it's got to be on the list. And then I think Jurassic Park, and then my honorable mention would be Superman. But uh, what do you think? Where does this movie? So, so I got a hot take for you. Yep. I don't, I don't like the score to this movie. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Never been a fan of it. I know people like love it, love it. I remember when uh, you and Yancey, one of your very first shows, you talked about movie music. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that the score for Jurassic Park was on his list or he talked about it a lot. Um, I, I, I am a fan of John Williams and his score. Basically, the, the top three or four you just talked about, I would agree with. I would definitely put Superman ahead of Jurassic Park. Uh, I would probably put Superman ahead of Jaws, mainly for the same reasons you just said. Yeah. Like, it's kind of hard. Jaws is much more subtle. Um, uh, but, yeah, no, I, I just something about the music for this. I mean, I don't I don't dislike it. I, I think it works for the movie. I, I just never, in my mind, it never really had that staying power. And you know what? It, maybe it has something to do with the fact that my first exposure to it wasn't in a movie theater like all those other ones. Um, but, no, it's just... I recognize it. I can appreciate it for what it is. Uh, or well, maybe I'm not appreciating it enough for what it is, but uh, I, I wouldn't put this yeah. on the same level as a Raiders or a Star Wars. Like not even, not a chance. I don't, like, I don't think close. you're giving enough credit, but but that being said, like in, in all honesty, how in the actual living hell was this not nominated for best original score at the Oscars? Uh, what do you happen to know what else was nominated I that year? I do. So, okay, play mommy. Schindler's List won. Okay, won the won the Oscar that year. It was up against The Age of Innocence, The Firm, The Fugitive, and The Remains of the Day. So there, you've got three period piece, four period pieces if you count Schindler's right. List and The Firm. I, I'm I'd have to go back and listen to The Firm again, but that's the one that I think would have to drop off that list. There is no way in my mind that the score for Schindler's List was better than the score for Jurassic Park. I mean, come on, if I were to say. Hum me a few bars from the score of Schindler's List. You couldn't do it. I Doesn't defy it something like ah, ah. <laughs> I I defy anyone in the world to hum a few bars of the score of Schindler's List. It just can't be done. Like Jaws is easy. Like dun 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 dun. dun right and Star Wars dun 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 dun, dun. and Raiders. You know. Schindler's List, crickets. You can't do it. So I just, I just cannot imagine that year 
that Schindler's List would be nominated and win over this film. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know. I think we're just going to agree to disagree on that one. That I, I, I agree that it probably should have been nominated. I don't necessarily think it should have won, but... You know, Better than I? Schindler's List, though. I mean, look, what the heck was that? It probably. Again, I, I only saw Schindler's List, I think, once or maybe twice. It's it's not the kind of movie you want to keep going back to to go, oh, well, you know, it's got a good score, so I'm going to keep watching it over and over again. Um, so just going back to the, the special effects for a second, because we were talking about the practical special effects, and there was quite a few of them in this film. Oh, there was a lot it, of them, yeah. Like the raptor hatching from the egg was all practical. The giant the, dinosaur eye in the window, like that's... Oh, yeah, the, that's the whole T-Rex, the whole T-Rex close-ups was a huge yeah, animatronic, all, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, That sick triceratops that was laying there. Yeah. And then the CGI... <laughs> the that's one giant pile of poop. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that um, wasn't CGI, that was real poop. <laughs> the CGI, though, was like things like the full T-Rex running around, the, yeah. the, the full shots of the raptors, the Gallimimus herd was all CGI. And then I love, like I mentioned before, how they blended some of them. Like the entire T-Rex scene goes back and forth between, you know, practical special effects of this giant T-Rex model that they had and CGI. Like just go back and forth. And if you watch that whole uh, T-Rex scene, best scene in the movie, by the way, um, it's seamless. You don't even notice the difference yeah. between the two. That is something else. In 1993, that is something else. Yeah, that was else, amazing. You know? And that definitely holds up. Oh, absolutely. No question. It did for me watching it again. I was like, I'm just blown away. But another thing that blew me away about this movie, watching this, you know, this many years later, because I haven't seen it for a while. The thing that really stood out to me wasn't even so much the special effects. It was actually the dialogue that really got me when I watched it this time. I thought that was one of the strongest parts of the movie, oddly enough. So when they, remember they first get to the park, and Ellie says, I think we're out of a job. Yeah. And Malcolm's like, don't you mean extinct? <laughs> that was actually a quote that was originally used by the stop motion effects guy, Phil Tippett. Nice. So, I mean, I like Phil Tippett because, I mean, <clears throat> one time that I, I tweeted to him, asked him about AT-ATs. Oh, right. The AT and I had versus like, AT-AT. Yeah. yeah, and he got back to me and it was great. Um, but he was actually working on the, the film originally doing stop motion dinosaur shots. The whole mm -hmm. movie was going to be all stop motion. You know, and, and then all of a sudden, <clears throat> the guys in the computer division of Industrial Light and Magic, they're like, hey, we, we're experimenting with this, like, computer-generated graphics over here. We can make dinosaurs come to life with these computers. And then when they perfected that technique, Phil Tippett said to the other practical special effects people, he's like, I think we're, gonna, we're about to become extinct. So they use that line in the movie, you know. Nice. Um, but speaking of the dialogue, Hammond, I thought, had a few good lines. I like when he's talking about Malcolm and he's like, I really hate that man. I really hate <laughs> such a, Just such a great line. It just, it sums up so much of the plot. Um, right? Are there going to be some dinosaurs on this ride? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then when the storm, the, the bad storm is approaching to Hammond's like, why didn't I build an Orlando? Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking, as soon as he said that, again, watching that now, I'm like, Based on all the fights that, that DeSantis has had with Disney, maybe not the best choice either, Hammond. You know, yeah. you, you imagine DeSantis being like, those goddamn woke dinosaurs. You know what I mean? But I think Ian Malcolm has the best lines in this whole movie. Oh, he absolutely has the best lines. It's so good. Yeah. So a couple that stood out to me. Life finds a way. Yep. That line just resonates when he says it. Like, it's so good. And I love when he says... 
he gets the, them all in the room and they're all like all talk about how they're going to monetize this whole thing. And he's like, the lack of humility displayed before nature is staggering. And I was yeah. like, oh my God. It was, again, the, 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 it was the, the dialogue was really impactful when I watched it this time where it wasn't the last, like, you know, in previous viewings, like years ago when mm-hmm. I was younger, it was all about the special effects. It was about dinosaurs. But I found this time that the, the dialogue was so much better. He says, uh, you're so focused on if you could, you didn't stop to think if you should. Yeah. Like what a great line. I mean, the, the whole story is a cautionary tale, right? It is. Like it's yeah. And then his speech to Hammond, which is probably the best dialogue in the whole film. He says the problem in the scientific power that you're using here is that it didn't take any discipline to attain it. You read what others had done and you just took the next step. You didn't, earn the knowledge for yourselves. So you take no responsibility for it. And I was like, oh my God, like it's so, like so well-written, the dialogue. is like, like that's some powerful dialogue there, eh? don't you think, man? Absolutely, no, this, I, and that's the advantage of, of a movie that's based on a book is the if they're using dialogue that a professional author has written, you know that it's gone through revisions, it's gone through editorial, right. like, it's it's strong, which is not to say the screenwriters can't produce things to the quality of authors, but it's just to take it from a novel and turn it into a screenplay, you get one more crack at at everything, at all the dialogue, at all the words, and and you get to decide, is this good enough as it is, or can we improve it? And I think that in, a, in with a story like this, because the the author was quite a strong author and the book was so popular, they knew they're just like the author's done his homework. Let's just leave these things as they are, and uh, like the book is a cautionary tale, and it's uh, you know he does such a good job, and those these characters say the right things at the right times to help accentuate the points, and then of course it's all wrapped around it in a dinosaur story, which is nice. But um, and sorry, the, jo- oh sorry, go ahead. I was going to say one of the things that I wanted to. Um, uh, to, to talk about, and this sort of ties into the dialogue a little bit, is just the overall theme of the movie that has to do with the the female perspective. Like, so much mm-hmm. of this movie is girl power. And whether that was deliberate choice by Creighton or whether it just worked out that way, who knows. Um, but I, upon a rewatch, upon many rewatches, you start to see that, that like, the fact that all the dinosaurs are female. The fact that even at the beginning, when uh, they're in the helicopter, um, uh, what's his name goes to to try and put the uh, Grant tries to put the the seatbelt on, and he's got the two female ends. And so again, he has to use he has to tie them together, and it's right. the whole thing, you know, that life finds a way. Not that not that those are live, but the idea that two females coming together can still accomplish the goal. And you've got uh, you know the two children that are in there, and the 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 girl is slightly older than the boy, and she's obviously. Um, you know, trying to to take charge of the situation, and she's she's coming up with the great ideas of how to thwart these dinosaurs. You've got, um, you know, uh, Doctor Statler, who is is a predominant, uh, or um, predominant is the wrong word, but is a, a scientist who is the leader in her field, and she comes out and like she's able to solve some of the problems and stuff. You've got all of these strong female characters in this movie, and. And they're the ones that are actually making things happen for better or for worse, right? Like the, the dinosaurs are finding a way. They're all female dinosaurs. It's it's like the subtext is in there. And 
I know sometimes you 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 know you take a course or you read a book and someone's like, well, this is a metaphor for this other thing, and oh, I think this represents blah blah blah, and you're like, I think you're reading too much into it. But in this case, I think this is a very deliberate choice by the author of the book and the people that were making the movie to to really emphasize this idea of the the, the female empowerment that's in this movie, and and it's there. And if you don't think it is, watch it again with that lens, and you're going to be surprised. Those are some great observations. So. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the T-Rex scene because it is my favorite scene in the whole, whole movie. And like I said, it really does combine that sort of CGI and practical effects. It's just mm-hmm. oh, so good. Could you imagine being a special effects person who worked on this? It would be like so amazing to be a part. Like what an accomplishment. So, yeah, no kidding. One of the things that I really love about this scene is that up until this point of the film, it's all been kind of light, even a bit slow overall like it's Mm -hmm. all about science how the park works the whole dna science fiction stuff and then the movie just takes this sharp right turn into horror (laughs) and then at the end of the scene when the t-rex sort of triumphantly roars after it pushes the car over the cliff absolute movie magic Mm -hmm. (laughs) like such a good scene like uh, and, and i think that's the thing like none of the sequels come anywhere close to capturing what's going on in this scene. Like just the tension, the special effects, the acting, the pacing, everything that went into that scene and just made it so damn good is lacking in all of the sequels as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, absolutely. Oh, that scene is so good. And it brings me back to the pacing. Like we've mentioned before how Spielberg is just a master of pacing. In a movie, oh, yeah. Right? No one so, does it as well as he does. And so like I say, it's all kind of slow. And then you have this massive T-Rex scene. And right after this huge over-the-top T-Rex scene, the pacing slows right down, right? They're in the tree. You get a breather. You get to catch your breath. Yeah. Hammond and Ellie are discussing all the scientific ethics of doing this. There's that Nedry subplot going on, you know, trying to get the park back online, all that stuff. It just slows right down. And then the raptors in the kitchen scene. And like you're right back into this heart-stopping action, you know, it's yeah. just, oh, so well-paced. You know, um, I love that, too, in, in the in that scene with the raptors. Uh, I think Grant says, to her, are you sure the other raptors contained? And, and Ellie's like, yeah, unless they figured out how to open up doors. Immediately cut to a scene of the door handle slowly moving. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Spielberg is so good at that stuff. I also thought the grandkids, again, going back to what we had talked about originally about, about kids, you know, yep. being a big part of dinosaurs. They were an integral part of the script. Very, oh, sure. very, very smart for Spielberg to kind of put them forefront because kids love dinosaurs, you know? Like well, and, and I mean, you, you hear, uh, you know, the whole idea of representation matters. Now, obviously, this movie is it's got a lot of white people in it, but it was made 30 years ago. So it is what it is. But the representation of children in this movie, I think, was a big part of why it was so successful because kids wanted to see the dinosaurs, mm-hmm. but kids could also relate to the child performers they saw on screen. They could, they could, there was that wish fulfillment of that could be me. I could be at Jurassic Park. Yeah, this part was scary, but look, they got to, they got to play with the dinosaurs and get up close and touch the dinosaurs and be there and see them in real life. And I think that's a big part of um, why the movie was so successful. And I think Spielberg absolutely understands it. He's made lots of movies with little kids in them. And that's a big part of, of what makes it work. That's part of the formula. I agree. I remember I had this one like how and why book of dinosaurs when I was a kid. And I had this encyclopedia kind of book. It had the entire history of prehistoric creatures. And I gave them both to my son. And then and he loved them too. 
there's just something about like you you had mentioned before the wonder of dinosaurs it just captures people's imagination especially kids yep but i think what works even better here is like you said that you know kids can watch it and relate to it and it makes it all the more horrifying when the dinosaurs start attacking people especially the grandkids it's even more horrifying right so um again that raptor's kitchen scene the Again, it's like a master class in practical special effects and CGI, like working together. Just yep. it, it, it creates like tension and pacing and action and suspense. It's just so well done. It's it's better than anything in the sequels. So I think if you look at this in terms of the action and, and all the special effects, the source material, the book, the pacing, the plot, great characters to motivate the story. I think this is pretty much a perfect film, having gone back and watched it. So 30 years later, what would you rate this movie out of 10? Uh, probably give it a eight, eight and a half, maybe an eight. Let's say an eight and a half. I'll go with that. Wow. It gets a 10 from me. Wow. 10 out of 10. It's it was good, but I didn't think it was 10 out of 10 good. Oh, it's but... 10 out of 10 good. It is. So let me ask good. you this. Yeah. You have the option to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark again or Jurassic Park again. Now you just gave Jurassic Park a 10 out of 10. Are yeah. you watching Jurassic Park again before... Raiders no, I would watch Raiders of the Lost Ark because, as you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Star Wars, and Jaws are like my number three films One, two, three, of all time. Yeah. And they're all tens, too. So Yeah, okay, that's fair. So I would watch those ahead of this one again. But I okay. mean, but again, given the chance to go to the movie theaters, especially now that they're starting to like show some of these older movies in the theaters, I would love to go see Jurassic Park. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Having not had that opportunity when it first came out, I, I agree. I think I would Gotta definitely pay to see this yeah. in the theater again. Uh, well, not again, but to see it in the theater for the first time exactly. in my case. Yeah. So, okay. Well, what do you say on that note that we have some fun with Caveman? Okay. So since it was my movie choice this week, the trivia segment is in your hands, my friend. So what have you got for us? All right. We're going to play a fun. slightly modified version of a game that we call Pick the Flick. Pick the Flick. the synopsis then pick the flick you get the year pick the flick all right over to you what what flicks are we going to pick this week all right well so this uh jurassic park we just Mm -hmm. talked about steven spielberg uh we talked about um Mm -hmm. uh, jeff goldblum we talked about uh uh, laura dern we're not going to talk about any of those people in the trivia i took a complete left turn We are going to focus on the title of this movie is Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you the the year, the synopsis, and possibly one additional clue about a whole bunch of movies that all have the word park somewhere in the title. Oh, my God. All right. Cool. Okay. I'll be be honest. Most of these are older movies, like 80s or older. So a lot of them I had never heard of. But then when I looked them up, I was like, oh, Chris is totally going to know this. So I'm I'm hoping you're going to get a lot of these. But uh, we'll, we'll run down the list and we'll see. There are some newer ones on here, but I have an extra hint after every movie because some of these seem like they're just a little bit too tough. So I'm going to start with two Canadian movies. OK, the first right. one is from 1998. It's written and directed by Bruce McCullough. Canadian writer director and oh. the synopsis the synopsis is mm-hmm. two dog lovers meet at a singles bar recognize each other and recognize each other from the dog park Andy and Lorna are recent singles after their exes met so I haven't seen the movie but it's called dog park isn't it it, it is called yeah. dog park yeah 
I saw this movie at the Toronto International Film Festival at its debut. It's like very first premiere, mm-hmm. um, and it was uh, it was a fun little movie. But having the 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 performers, especially the Canadian people that were in it, were all there to talk about the movies. So that was that was kind of fun. Anyway, yeah, Dog Park from 1998. Okay, this one hopefully a little easy as well. Uh, Canadian content from 2006. Okay. Three petty felons come up with a scheme to steal large amounts of untraceable coins. And this is based on a long-running Canadian television show. Hmm. Is it the Trailer Park Boys? Yes, it is. Yes. They did a nice. ton of movies, but this was the first one. The oh, movie. there you go. Cool. All right. All right. Uh, this one is from 2001. It's directed by... Robert Altman, and it's set in the 1930s. A group of pretentious, rich and famous get together for a weekend of relaxation at a hunting resort. But when a murder occurs, each one of these interesting characters becomes a suspect. I want to say was nominated called, nominated was for it, best picture. Wasn't was it called Gorky Park? <laughs> Close. It was called Gosford Park. Gosford Park. Oh, okay. All right. I remember seeing this in the theater, and I seem to remember it being ridiculously long, but uh, it, it had a, a remarkable cast. It was pretty good. Okay. All right. Uh, this one's from 1999. Uh, I'll give you the synopsis, and then I'll give you a little hint. Uh, Fanny, born into a poor family, is sent away to live with wealthy uncle Sir Thomas, his wife, and their four children, where she'll be brought up for a proper introduction to society. It is based on a Jane Austen novel. Oh, with Park in it? Hmm. I don't know. It's called Mansfield Park. Mansfield Park. It sounds somewhat familiar. So Yeah. All right. Uh, next one. We're going way back. This one you should have no problem with. 1967. Paul, a conservative young lawyer, marries the vivacious Corey. Their highly passionate relationship descends into comical discord in a five-flight New York City walk-up apartment. It was written oh. by Neil Simon. Oh, what the hell was it called? Something in the, Barefoot in the Park? Yes, yeah. Barefoot in the Park. Nice. Oh, yeah. Nice. All right. Next one's from 1971. Okay. This film follows the lives of heroin addicts who frequent Needle Park in New York City. Stars Al Pacino. Hmm. I don't know. It's called The Panic in Needle Park. Oh, wow. Okay. No, I've never even I, heard I, I of did, that. I, when I saw it start Al Pacino, I'm like, well, maybe he'll get it from that. So, okay. Uh, this is another indie one from 2007. It's written and directed by Gus Van Sant. Okay. And the synopsis is a teenage skateboarder's life begins to fray after he is involved in the accidental death of a security guard. Don't know. It was called Paranoid Park. And this is one of those ones, if you go back and look at the cast, you'll be shocked at how famous most of them have become. Okay. I never even heard of it. So, All right. You have little kids. This one's for you. This is an animated movie from 2019. The description is, the imagination of a wildly creative girl comes alive in an amusement park. Mm, That doesn't sound familiar, and I do have kids. So uh, I, that's why I, that's why I threw it in there. I thought maybe you've seen this one. You got little kids. No, I don't even think I've ever heard of it. So I don't know. All right. It was called Wonder Park. Oh, OK. 
All right. I don't think you're going to get this one, but I'm going to put you through the paces. This is a documentary that I talked about on this show probably in the last year. Okay. And it focuses on a dangerous, legendary water park and its slew of injuries and crimes along with child safety concerns. I I was just thinking of that blackfish, so I don't know. It's called Class Action Park. Mm, Okay. And it is definitely worth a watch it was fantastic okay all right got a few more for you here Lamb uh, on me. this one's from 1975 i'm not doing very well you know, you're doing better than i thought hmm. this is from 1975 i'm going to tell you the director after i read the synopsis because okay. i think that'll be a giveaway an elderly gentleman goes for what he assumes will be an ordinary day at the amusement park only to find himself in the middle of a hellish nightmare it is directed by george a romero oh my god romero with Park. 75. I don't know. Okay. It was just called The Amusement Park. Oh, man. I know Romero. I mean, I, I figured you would. I That's why I thought you'd get that. that. Nope. Never right. even heard of that before. Oh, my God. All right. Got another one here from Robert Altman. Uh, this mm-hmm. one's from 1969. The description okay. is one day, France, Francis Austin, a rich but lonely woman, invites a homeless young man from a nearby park to her apartment and offers to let him stay there. And has no intention of ever letting him leave. Is it the Prince of Central Park? It is not. Oh. Want to try Got any other guesses? Mm, no. It's called That Cold Day in the Park. Oh, 1969, okay. Robert Altman. Okay. All right. Uh, only got a couple left, and I definitely threw a few easy ones right at the end for you. Oh, we're good. Not, I need not, some. Do- we're not quite there yet. This one's a little newer. I, but it stars Bill Murray. So I thought you might know this one's from 2012. And it's the story of the love affair between FDR and his distant cousin, Margaret Daisy Suckley, centered around the weekend what? in 1939 when the king and queen of the United Kingdom visit upstate New York. It stars Bill Murray. No idea. It's called Hyde Park on Hudson. <laughs> okay. <laughs> With Bill Murray. Yeah, I thought it had Bill Murray in it. it had, I can't remember who else was in it. Is it, it Stripes? It's a couple other people. Okay. Uh, here's a few few easier ones for you. Okay, this one's from 1983. A Moscow police officer investigates a vicious triple homicide and stumbles upon a high-level international political conspiracy. That's, is that Corky Park? That's Corky oh. Park, yes. Stars William Hurt. Yes. All right. This one uh, is a made-for-TV movie. Mm-hmm. A rock band made up of superheroes battles an evil inventor who has plans for destruction at a California amusement park from Ooh, 1978. That's, that's got to be Kiss meets the yep. Phantom of the Park. Yes. Yeah. Kiss Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park. Good yes. job. I figured you'd get that. Also last, shortened to, for a long time, shortened to Kiss meets the Phantom. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, I was around guar- for that as a kid. So guaranteed you'll get this one from yep. 1999. Okay. When the children of a small mountain town go to see an R-rated movie, they start cursing and their parents think that a foreign country is to blame. And the foreign country would be Canada. And it was yep. South Park, bigger, longer, and uncut. Yeah, there you go. Nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> there you go. No, 
You did pretty some good. Some of those was, were pretty hard, man. Some oh, of those my were goodness. pretty hard, but I, I didn't know. Again, I know you know some of those older movies, especially the ones from like recognizable directors or big actors in them. I thought, oh, maybe Chris knows these, but some of them you knew that I, I didn't know you would, and other ones you, you just, I mean, they were hard. You didn't get them all, but mm-hmm. there was a lot. I actually had a lot more. I had to call the list down. I think I ended up narrowing down to about 15, but uh, no, you did pretty good. I didn't think I did that good, but okay. So we've spent the last two episodes going back and looking at movies celebrating their 30th anniversary. So um, what do you say that next time we come back and we do a topic, we come back and we'll figure out what we're going to do. Is that something? I love it. Yeah. Sounds sense? great. Right. Yep. We'll do that. And then at some point in the future, you can maybe watch something newer too. That's always a lot of fun. There we go. Well, we'll, we'll do that. So we'll come back good. next time. Well, we'll figure out what the topic is between now and then you and I always figure that out. But until then, this is Chris McBride on behalf of myself and Derek Meyer saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 